Aren't we again thankful to be able to assemble in the way that we are this afternoon, to do so with the protective cover of the blessing of God, the appreciation that's ours in the serenity and the quietness of a moment like this one, to assemble to praise and honor Him in the way that we've already done so far this evening. You've probably already noticed on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson tonight will involve two matters, one of which is jealousy, the other of which is envy. And as we devote the next few moments to a study, a reflection on both of them, I hope that you have your Bible handy so that we can study a number of passages together and try to achieve a clearer understanding of the, these two matters. This next slide will be an introductory one in that it basically is, is, a, is a warning or at least a statement. We've often noted in our Bible study classes that when the words envy or jealousy occur in some section of the Bible, we often define them in a way that seems in many ways to be partly interchangeable. We often define them in a very strong way associated one with the other. And perhaps on occasion that's a, a realistic consideration, but the more that I looked into some of these matters, I became convinced that that isn't always the case. In fact, you'll notice at the top, Although the two words do occur in the Bible, as we'll find very shortly, the Bible uses them very differently. So much so that, in fact, the whole matter of sinfulness is attached to one of them, but not to the other one. And that by itself means that it's important for you and me to know a bit about the nature of the distinction so that we'll never allow our life to lapse into what would be sinful. To do so, of course, will often present its challenges as we think about what on the one hand is jealousy... And what on the other hand is envy? How does the Bible distinguish them? And what about the ways in which various passages use each one of these terms? At the bottom of that slide, I'll simply encourage that with care we'll look at a number of verses tonight, some of them more quickly than others, but all the while looking at the matter before us of this issue of jealousy, followed by that of envy. First of all, let's take them in the order of jealousy first. If you and I were called upon to define it, I simply looked on the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and here is its definition for jealousy. Now, before I should go too far, we'll certainly be interested at what the Word of God has to say. That, that is our chief interest, of course. But I thought it might at least help us appreciate that here is the common way that the professionals would tell us that the word jealousy should be used. It is an intolerant, intolerance of rivalry or unfaithfulness. Or to say that differently, it is a hostility toward a rival or one believed to have an advantage. Finally, to possess vigilance in the guarding of a possession. Now I'm sure as you think about again all of those definitions, give consideration again to that first one an intolerance, an appreciation of one who has at least some degree of rivalry and one is a bit intolerant of that person. One looks upon them with a degree of what you and I would call jealousy. But you'll notice following that, let's come to the Holy Word of God. In the King James Bible, that word jealous or some form of it occurs 54 times. Now again, that's in the English Bible, but 54 occurrences. And may I ask you to notice that the overwhelming majority of them are in the Old Testament. There's only five usages I could find in the New Testament of that English word. Of those 49 occurrences of the Old Testament, 
you and I would be of interest to then observe in what contexts was jealousy referenced and in what way was it presented. First of all, might we notice the Hebrew word that's most often rendered that occurs some 40 times. And it won't take us very long to appreciate the circumstances in which it usually occurred. In fact, I presented a somewhat lengthy list, but nonetheless one that does, I think, present the vast considerations of how that word is employed. Let's step through them one at a time. In Exodus chapter 20, verse number 5, we find this rather interesting presentation. As the Ten Commandments are set forth, we remember that when commandments 3 and 4 are presented, among them we notice rather amazingly and also very definitively that God says, I am a jealous God. And of course, in those contexts, they were not to have any other gods before Yahweh, nor were they ever to make any kind of graven images of anything. And furthermore, they were never to take His name in vain. And among that presentation, He said, I am a jealous God. As you look at the next one in Exodus 34, verse 14, the one that was read a moment ago in our hearing is the lesson text. In fact, in Exodus 34, 14, this statement is made. It says, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. As you read through that verse, you may notice the first occurrence of the word jealous is capitalized. It's as if that is the personal or at least a description of the personal name of the God of heaven. He said, I'm jealous. With those two thoughts in mind, look at the next one. In Deuteronomy 4.24, as we come to that last book of the Pentateuch, wasn't it there that again we appreciate God as He warned the people relative to their soon-to-be entrance into Canaan? He told them again that He was a jealous God. To that next generation who now were going to enter into Canaan, they needed to understand the fact that the God of heaven is jealous. In Deuteronomy 5, verse number 9, just one chapter later, there's another usage where again we see the impression that God refers to Himself in a way again that is of jealousy. At this point, we've already learned or at least seen enough of these verses that tell us something rather noteworthy. As you and I think about the attribute of jealousy, we think about it in such a negative light we think about it with a connotation of evil. And yet in every verse so far, God is the one that's jealous. Now God never does anything evil. He never does anything wrong. And He never does anything that's questionable. And yet He says He's jealous. That may immediately remind us that there's some more to be learned about jealousy. And we'll attempt to do that this evening. Let's continue our journey. In Joshua 24, 19... And virtually the deathbed of Joshua when he reminded the people in his closing speech, that farewell address, he reminded them one more time that the great God of heaven is jealous and that He and He alone is to be worshipped. Now the people had often been moved and compelled to think about various and sundry gods which were only false, and yet Joshua encouraged them to appreciate the jealous nature of God. In Joel 2.18, as we come to the Minor Prophets, we notice even here, early in the Minor Prophets, Joel was really one of the first ones chronologically. 
And yet even he in that day, God through him affirmed in a so direct fashion that God is jealous. And the people so often had chosen to give their allegiance to another spiritually. And that just wasn't the right thing to do in any way. In Nahum 1 verse number 2, that verse begins rather thunderously when it says, God is jealous. Now that's about as emphatic a passage as you and I could ever encounter on a, on a text like this one. Finally, in Zechariah 1.14 as well as eight, chapter 8 verse 2, there the reference is to God's jealousy in relation to Jerusalem. How that in that particular moment... Jerusalem was soon to suffer a number of things, but God held out the reality that there was to be a rebuilding and there was to be a future time in which Jerusalem again would be a very special place. But again, God was jealous over Jerusalem. I say all those things at least asking you to think about them with me because with it, why don't we close that slide this way? So far, virtually every example we've noticed, it's been God that's the one that's jealous. But He isn't the only one in the Bible of whom and to whom the attribute of jealousy is prescribed. In 1 Kings chapter 19, that noble and bold prophet of Israel, whose man's, the man's name being Elijah, twice in that particular paragraph, he himself made this statement, I have been jealous for the law of God, for the people of Israel. Elijah referred to himself and apparently did so with the blessing of God in terms of his attribute of jealousy. Wasn't it true that Elijah appreciated the fact that so very many had chosen to give their allegiance to Baal? In fact, wasn't it in the preceding chapter, 1 Kings 18, when that very memorable contest on Mount Carmel took place? They prepared the various altar, and first of all, the, the priests of Baal were allowed to go first. And they called upon Baal and did so rather noticeably all morning long, and nothing ever happened. The fire never came and consumed the sacrifice. Finally, Elijah said, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he ought to call a little bit louder. And so they did. They cut themselves, and blood was gushing everywhere. Still no answer. Finally, Elijah said, now it's my turn. And the altar was prepared, and they dumped water on it just like Elijah commanded. And he said, do it again. And they did. And Elijah very humbly prayed to the God of heaven, and fire came forth, consumed not only the sacrifice, but the altar, consumed even the very things constructing it. It was in that context that so many people had given their allegiance to Baal. And in that next chapter, Elijah said, I have been jealous for the God of heaven. Though others may have forsaken you, God, I never will. And Elijah used that word to describe his own emotions. He by no means, though, was the only one. In Ezekiel 36, we read on that occasion about the prophet Ezekiel who in that day God again exhibited jealousy for His people Israel. And even Ezekiel made reference to that truth or to that fact. Finally, is it not to the Apostle Paul we might turn for another consideration? In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Paul said, I have been jealous over you with a godly jealousy. 
Doesn't that seemingly indicate that jealousy by itself isn't always wrong? For Paul said there's a godly version of it. And that's what I feel. That's what I have, he said, for you. Now the church in Corinth had had its difficulties and problems. And by the time the second Corinthian letter was written, here was a congregation that had made some changes. But Paul still felt the need to defend his apostleship. And in that discussion he said, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. He exhibited that and wrote it in a way that he feared that they were going to be led astray by the simplicity of some who would teach what was not right. Maybe it's with all that in mind we close that slide and we begin to ask some more questions about jealousy. All of these verses seemingly point us to some, some conclusions I've tried to state here. It certainly seems the case in light of what we've just stated God was jealous, Paul was jealous, Elijah was jealous. There's a version that's godly in character. It certainly seems entirely reasonable to say that jealousy by itself apparently is not wrong in every form. Apparently there's something about it. If God is able to exhibit it, if Paul and Elijah and others are able to exhibit it, there must be something about it that's worthy of some deeper consideration. It's on this slide that I hope we can at least develop it. We might be quick to say it is entirely possible that jealousy can lead to something sinful, that jealousy can lead to behavior or mental perspective that itself might well be wrong. But apparently in its most basic form by itself, jealousy isn't always wrong. Now, what's that line of distinction? What is it that might be understood about it? Well, you'll notice about the middle of the slide. Here's one way that we may take that definition we listed earlier and maybe reconsider it from a different light or try to put it in language that helps us appreciate the difference between it and envy. Jealousy is that feeling, that degree of frustration, if you please, in which... A person has something that perceives another is trying to take it away. Now think about that with me. I as a person have something, I possess something, and yet I perceive that another is trying to take that away from me. That's the feeling of jealousy. To say that another way, this is something that belongs to me. And I don't appreciate the fact that someone else is trying to take it from me. Now, maybe it's a material thing. Maybe it's influence, prestige, power of some sort. But it's something that I possess by virtue of the blessing of God in response to skills that I have or in response to His overt blessings in some form. This is something that I possess and another I perceive is attempting to take it from me. That's the feeling of jealousy. Now, if you think about it in that form, it's not at all wrong to not be happy with someone taking something that belongs to me. It's reasonable to have a feeling like that. What we have to be careful of is not allow that feeling to lapse into something else to where in that feeling that they're taking something from me that I have, that I say something that I shouldn't, or I act in some way that I shouldn't, or perhaps I overtly attempt to do harm in some way to them. 
You'll notice as we come near the bottom of that slide, consider again those places in the Old Testament where that word so often appeared. Think about God again. What is it that could be said about the fact He was jealous? The Old Testament leaves us no doubt. The children of Israel behaved in a way that prompted Him to that feeling. In Psalm 78, verse number 58, it says, Israel provoked me to jealousy. Now, how did they do that? Because they began to worship other things that weren't God. They were giving that the attention that was rightfully mine, God would say, to something that wasn't me. They were giving their worship, their praise, their glory, the directive of creation or other matters to someone other than God. Notice that rightfully belonged to God. He's the Creator. He's the one that blessed Israel's soul. They should have praised Him and given Him the homage and the glory, but so often they didn't. That led to feelings of jealousy in God. Was that wrong by itself? Of course not. God never does anything wrong. He's perfect. He is sinless and flawless. In Deuteronomy 32.4, we have Him described as the God of justice who always does what's perfect. In Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? A rhetorical question, He always does what's right. You notice then the children of Israel behaved in a way, not ascribing to Him what rightfully was His, and that led to those feelings of jealousy as the Old Testament called it. You'll notice in Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 21, one more time, as Moses was nearing the time of his death, he sang that beautiful and memorable song of praise unto God, but in the course of it, he commented that God had been promoted or prompted to jealousy because of Israel's sin, because of their idolatry. May I submit that today, if you and I were to be given to idolatry, that still would be a matter of promoting jealousy in God, for He is rightly to be worshipped and no other. As you and I come near the close of that slide, don't you find it interesting that it's this attribute that appears a number of times in the Old Testament? In Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, God says, I am the bridegroom and Israel is my wife. God says, I have been faithful to her. I, in fact, have supported her, encouraged her, defended her, and yet she has not been faithful to me. Israel, again, lapsed into idolatry, and they turned their back on the one to whom they were wed. God says, I've been the faithful husband, but they haven't been my faithful wife. Today, it's entirely right for a husband to feel jealousy for his wife. He doesn't want her attention directed to any other man. And it's entirely right for her to feel a degree of jealousy concerning his attention. He shouldn't be giving it to anybody else. That's a vital part of what marriage is to be. And that's the very backdrop of texts like Jeremiah 3 verses 1 and following. God said, I was faithful and she wasn't. Now, God did, of course, attempt to teach many valiant lessons to ancient Israel, calling them to be faithful to Him. And yet so often, though they may be faithful for a while, they lapsed again into idolatry. To close that slide, you and I might notice one more time that text in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. 
We mentioned this earlier, but isn't it intriguing to ponder godly jealousy? As Paul addressed the church in Corinth, that church that he had had such a vital part in, he helped to establish it. That church in Corinth was one whom Paul considered very near and dear to him, and he wanted them to be faithful and true to God. He wanted them to be a congregation known for its strength and fortitude, and one to whom the grand blessing of so many others by way of example could be directed. Paul said, I have been jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Paul didn't want them to direct their attention spiritually anywhere else. He wanted it directed to God. He wanted it directed to the truth. And he didn't want that directed on their part to any other source or any other being. No wonder Paul felt that degree of jealousy. And may I submit, it would be entirely right for you and I to feel that way today. We shouldn't want anybody, be it our neighbors, our relatives, our friends, or anybody else, directing the utmost attention of their life and heart to anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We too should feel a degree of jealousy relative to the truth of God. After all, it's not to be compromised. Hasn't the denominational world run amok with that thought? Compromising various and sundry parts of it for any number of interests? Well, you and I are jealous over the truth. It's not to be compromised or shared in any way. No wonder as we close that slide, we could be quick to say, it's entirely possible, though, when we perceive that someone is taking something that I possess, or at least we perceive that they are, though there's anything wrong in that particular attribute, we can easily allow that feeling to develop into words. After all, malice is condemned in Romans chapter 1. If I allow that feeling of jealousy to dwell in me and it leads to malice or it leads to hatred, or it leads to envy, or it leads to ill will, or it leads to overt failure in forgiveness or any number of other things, then I have sinned. I have allowed that jealousy to reach a point it ought never to have been allowed to reach. Our study of jealousy so far has brought us to a number of interesting observations. Perhaps again the leading matter of which is God is so often said to be jealous. Maybe it's in light of that we might ask about envy. So what exactly is envy? This particular slide brings us to begin somewhat similarly to the way we did before. First, what about a common definition? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary again presents it like this, a painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. To say that differently... A feeling of wanting to have what someone else has. I hope we can each see a bit of a distinction. In the matter of jealousy, it's something that I possess that someone else I perceive is trying to take from me. In envy, it's something that somebody else possesses that I want. A very, a very different thing. With regard to this envy, though, you might notice almost immediately our interest is again how the Bible uses that word. The word envy or some form of it occurs 40 times in the Old and New Testaments. 40 times. And you can immediately notice that this one, unlike the other one, a fair number of them are in the New Testament. 
while ago, we noticed only five out of the occurrences of jealousy were in the New Testament, but this time 19 of these are. We'll look in some detail at the 19 occurrences, or at least some number of them in a moment. But as you might immediately observe what comes next, as far as I was able to tell, envy is always condemned as wrong. It's always highlighted as evil. It's always described in a way that's unproductive and harmful and hurtful. There's no way for it to be good. To look at that more carefully, let's then look at some of these verses. Again, we're discussing envy. In Mark 15, verse number 10, when you and I think about the crucifixion of our Savior, the very matter in which He was brought to the cross, we notice a statement is made. Even Pilate recognized that because of envy the chief priests had delivered him. Even Pilate was aware enough to appreciate the fact that it was motivated by envy that the chief priests and the various other religious leaders did what they did. Isn't it interesting? That seems to help us identify the very discussion in which we're involved. Jesus had something that the chief priests wanted. He had influence. The crowds were enjoying what He said and large multitudes were following and they wanted that respect and they wanted the notoriety that went with it. They wanted the influence that apparently was described by that approach and so that envy led them ultimately to cry out, crucify Him. They didn't want Him around anymore. What about another one? In Acts 7 verse number 9 in that memorable speech that Stephen delivered, he gave a panoramic view of Old Testament history, and as he did so, he described the behavior of Joseph's brothers, taking us back to Genesis chapters 37 and following. Wasn't it true that here the inspired writer said they were moved with envy? Now, what did those brothers of Joseph do? We remember that God had blessed Joseph with some dreams, and in those dreams, he had prestige over even his mother and father. The sun, the moon, and stars bowed down before him. We recall those statements were made. They were true, and yet the brothers wanted that prestige that he had. They wanted the sentiment attached to it, and what's more, he was dad's favorite son, and they didn't like it. They wanted a degree of that favoritism. You see, they wanted something Joseph had. And they were so moved and compelled by it, they were even willing to lie. They were even willing to sell him. And that they did. They lied to their dad, or at least led him to reach his own conclusion. And all of that was wrong. We again see what envy did. Let's look at the next one. In Acts 13.45, we recall that the Jews, as Paul on the first missionary journey came into the various cities to preach, the Jews, it says, were moved with the envy. They didn't appreciate just a little bit what Paul was preaching because he was taking the assertion and the prestige from them. Paul was preaching things like the old law of Moses is not to be followed anymore. That law was nailed to a cross and it is through the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and He alone that you can be saved. The Jews didn't appreciate that. They wanted what Paul had. And they were willing to, in fact, strive with hardness to quell him, to quiet him, to force him as much as they could not to preach. 
Maybe that statement takes us to Acts 17.5, when on the second missionary journey, one more time, there were Jews moved with envy. This time, as Paul came to Thessalonica, it was a place in which there was much trouble. That's the very place where there were those in wisdom who said, These who've turned the world upside down have come here also. And they, in fact, assaulted the house of Jason and others. Look at what envy did. They again wanted the opportunity and the respect that this man Paul had. And they didn't have it. We notice in Romans 1 verse 29, as we come near the close of that opening chapter in Romans, Paul presents one of those famous lists that we find often in his writings. Many things, he said, these things are worthy of death. These things are such that you can't go to heaven living like this. And among that list are things like homosexuality, murders, and envying. Now that's strong language. Here an inspired writer says, envy will condemn you to hell. If you're given to envy, if you're moved and motivated by it, and if you allow it to direct yourself, this is not pleasing to God. And it's again ranked right there with a whole host of others that you and I so often appreciate as being so evil. That isn't all. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 3, we noticed it was even present in the church at Corinth. Here was a congregation of the Lord's people and Paul there commented that they even themselves had failed in regard to envy on occasion. He encouraged them that they ought to grow spiritually and desire the sincere milk of the Word. He sadly had to say, I couldn't preach to you the meat because you weren't able to bear it. Beyond that, in 2 Corinthians 12 verse number 20, Paul, again, writing to the same congregation, said, There had been a time when you were moved and motivated by envyings. And isn't it great to appreciate? Apparently their repentance no longer brought that to reality. I hope, among other things, that if you and I find envy beginning to etch its way into our life, that we will at once, with great effort and diligence, strive to start making some immediate changes. Again, Envy is recorded as always being evil. Let's continue our listing. In Galatians 5, 21, the famous list presented there are the works of the flesh. One by one, things like adultery and fornication and variances and strifes and emulations, he said, you can't go to heaven living like this. And yet, in that same list are envyings. May I again ask each of us to appreciate when we begin to feel as if someone else possesses something that I want so badly that I'm even willing to commit sin for it, that's envy, and it'll condemn us. We must keep those thoughts at bay. We must keep them in check. As we continue our journey in Titus 3 verse 3, as Paul addressed that younger preacher about matters on the island of Crete, wasn't it true that even there was a civilization of people who often had their problems and envyings was one of them? Paul said that has to be remedied. It has to be fixed. Perhaps finally in James 3.14 as well as 1 Peter 2 verse 1. 
you remember that there is a wisdom that cometh down from above. And oh, how sweet that wisdom is. It's a wisdom that promotes godliness and goodness and obedience to the law of God. But on the other hand, he says there's a wisdom that's from beneath. It's sensual, it's devilish, and not only that, it encourages envy. Wisdom then that's from the devil. Who is the source of envying? It's the devil. He's the one that wants us to envy. He's the one that encourages those thoughts within us. Because isn't it true in 1 Peter 2 verse 1? That as you and I strive to be that which God would have us to be, we have to set aside envy. I suppose any of us could fall into a consideration materially or otherwise where someone else has something I want so badly that I would fall into the pattern of this envy that will condemn your soul or mine if we allow that to happen. Notice some final thoughts about envy. As you and I have noted, every occurrence I could find of it always listed it as a sin, always cataloged it as opposed to the will of God. No wonder as you come to the top of that slide, one sweet thing about envy and how it's distinguished so much from love. Love doesn't envy. Isn't that amazing? Love does not envy. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And so as you and I dwell in love, as we dwell in various and sundry matters of life, doesn't it lead us to appreciate perhaps this definition yet again? Envy, this consideration in which someone else has something that I want. They possess it, not me. But in my desire to have it, feelings of ill will, feelings of hatred, feelings of desire to do no matter what it takes in some way to get it, that's envy. And as you can well tell, those feelings and those realities oppose so many biblical truths. What about Philippians 4.11? The statement there, contentment. Someone else has something, but I want it so badly it agitates my mind, it causes me to be rather chaotic and frenetic, and I'm going to get it. Well, that's a direct statement that I don't have any contentment or at least an insufficient amount of it. Didn't Paul say, For I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. As Paul could make that statement, may you and I in wisdom understand the greatness behind it. Perhaps finally, in Luke 12, 15, didn't Jesus remind all of us in many ways about the danger of covetousness? You see, in many ways, this whole matter of envy can be linked almost directly to covetousness. Covetousness is simply wanting something more than I want God. That's all it is. I want something more than I want God. And so when you think about envy, I want what he's got, what she has. I want what they enjoy. And I'm willing to even oppose the things of God to have it. Again, in many ways that's linked rather amazingly to covetousness, isn't it? Sure enough, as you and I close the lesson then tonight, didn't Jesus say in Luke 12, 15, Beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. This evening our study has centered around jealousy on the one hand and envy on the other. 
And we've noticed that the Bible seems to make a rather notable distinction between them. And this summary slide is the closing one of the lesson this evening. We learn that jealousy involves something that I have, that I perceive someone else is attempting to take. By itself, seems to be no genuine harm in it, but the danger is when I allow that to become something more. We each like to keep in mind the things that God has given us and the matters that we have been privileged to possess. And when we perceive someone else trying to take it, well, that doesn't sit well with us. But may we not allow that to turn into envy or to turn into malice or hatred or ill will. Finally, we noticed envy, on the other hand, is something someone else has that I want. And perhaps I'm willing to go to great lengths, even sinful lengths, to get it. As you and I give thought to that distinction, it challenges to again think about being right with God. The Word of God is so practical, isn't it? It challenges us to even bring every thought into captivity to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. You and I always need to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Tonight, if there be anybody in the audience, perhaps matters in life have brought you, though a faithful Christian, at one time to realize that all isn't well with your soul. We would be honored, even delighted, to approach God in prayer on your behalf. God does demand that you confess those things and repent of them, and He will hear the faithful prayers that we offer on your behalf, and He'll forgive you. If though you've never become a Christian, what better night than tonight could there be? A night in which you could be immersed into Christ in response to the prerequisites of your belief, your repentance, and your confession. We'd be honored to help you. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. If there be anyone that might wish to come and make a public response, we would invite you to do so. And do it now while together we stand and while we sing.